Support for WIPR's podcasts comes from Brightview Senior Living. Since 1999, Brightview has proudly served Greater Baltimore with vibrant, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and enhanced care. Find a community near you at brightviewseniorliving.com. Back when we, when you turn on electric at our house, the light bill was $1.50, and every month they'd turn it off and take us two months to get that $1.50 to get it turned back on. It started with my grandmother, Leah, who was then a very young child, who had to flee from our native country, Namibia. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Stoop Storytelling Series podcast. I'm Laura Wexler. And I am Jessica Hinkin. And this week on the podcast, A Home Far Away, two tales of epic journeys in search of work, education, and safety. This first uh, story was told at a recent show um, that Laura mentioned on our last podcast episode that was um, in collaboration with the Baltimore Museum of Art. And this first storyteller, Mr. Carl Harding, was such a pleasure to get to know through this process. He is um, a Lumbee Indian by way of um, North Carolina, who now lives in the suburbs of <laughs> Maryland and is an absolute character and just such um he's got just nothing but joy. I mean, he's just a joyful joyful man and um so take a listen to his story of migration. Hello everyone. I was born a Native American in North Carolina from the Lumbee tribe and my father was a sharecropper. We moved around every two years, and I went to every school in Robinson County. (laughs) I dropped out of school at eighth grade because my father had cancer, and my brother and I had to take over about a 300-acre farm with two mules, and we never made a penny. We farmed all our life up to I was 15 years old, and my father was saying, next year we'll get out of debt. Next year we get out of debt. I said, ah, darn, there got to be a better way. So some guys came home from the weekend that had been working out of, sta- out of, out of the uh, area, and they had, was working in Moorhead City as migrants, working farmland, you know, farming. And they said, this, hey, why don't you go with us back to Moorhead City? They said, the guy told us to bring him some help back on the farm. I was 15 years old. I went in there and packed all the clothes I had, which was a pair of underwear, a T-shirt, and another pair of pants and what I had on, and I threw it out the window in one of those shopping bags with the rat with the handles on it, took off to Moorhead City, went to work, worked 40 hours that week, and the guy gave me $40. And I felt guilty taking the money. I said, what in the hell is I going to do with all this money, man? It was a stack of money like that. I think it was all $1 bills. I had never seen that much money in my life. Back when we, when you turn on electric at our house, the light bill was $1.50. And every month they'd turn it off and take us two months to get that $1.50 to get it turned back on. So when I saw all that money, I took that money home and went, went to bed that night and put it up under my back and opened my pocket knife and laid awake all night, afraid somebody would come in there and cut my throat and take my money. Well, after the first couple of weeks of that, I was hanging with them boys and started partying and figured out that wasn't quite enough money. You know, I mean, I was going through that money faster than I could make it. But I did look out for my mom. When I go home on the weekends, I'd always give her some money. 
So my, when the work was over with, the, the farm work, the, I told him, called my father and said, hey, uh, I'll be coming home for the winter. He said, no, you won't. He says, we've got the farm done without you. And says, I think you better stay where you are. Well, if you made it this summer, you should be able to make it this winter. I'm thinking, damn, I'm 15 years old. What am I going to do now, you know? Some of them boys said, hey, they're building a building down the road. I want you to go there and get a job. They said, you had to be 16, though. I said, he said, I said I'll tell the guy I'm 16. I walked in there and asked the guy, I said, hey, man, I'm looking for a job. He said, how old are you? I said, just turned 16. He said, well, what can you do? I said, i do anything. He said, what have you been doing? I said, farming all my life and doing anything anybody showed me how to do. I pick on, I learned real fast. He said, all right. Back then, there was no subcontractors. One company had their own, every crew. They had their own, all electricians, plumbers, everything. Every day, I'd go out with a different crew. So one day with the plumbers, one way with electricians, carpenters and all. So I learned to do a little bit of everything. And uh, the guy said to me one day, young blood, said, you need a trade. I said, what, kind, what are you talking about? He said, you need to learn one of these trades. I said, which one of these uh, jobs that you work on do you like the best? I said, man, I like to see them bricklayers laid in brick. I said, that's amazing how they do that. He said, all right, you're going to be a bricklayer. I said, no, nah, I don't want to be a bricklayer. Them guys told me that takes three years. I said, ain't you got something else I could do real, learn real quick? He said, well, what are you going to be doing for the next 60 years of your life? I started thinking about it. You know, he's right. He said, come in Monday morning. If you don't have any tools, turn around and go back home. Told me what, the tool, what, the, what kind of tools to buy. Went to work that Monday morning and put me with a bricklayer that built the corners. And uh, I worked with him, and the first day I laid 25 brick, he took 24 up. Next day I laid 60 brick, and he took out 10. Next day I laid 200 brick, and he brushed them down and touched them up a little bit and said, you're okay. Seven months, I had a crew. They gave me a five-man crew, and I learned to trade. Moved back to North Carolina <clears throat> and started working, making good money, helping my mother. And then I got wild, started partying a little bit and figured I better settle down. So I got married, saw I wasn't going to make it there around the same friends. You, when, you, when you're out there, you got to get away from the people that's hanging on to you and clinging. And every day I come home, they were saying, hey, come on out, let's go, let's go. And yeah, I just got married. I'm trying to settle down. So I called my sister, and she was living here in Maryland, and I asked her, I said, is there any jobs up there for bricklayers? She said, God, it's five ads in the paper. I said, can I come up and get a, uh, go to work and stay with you for a couple of days? She said, yeah, come on up. So I paid my bootleg bill that week, other little odds and ends, and I, jumped, I told my wife, I said, I'm going to get a bus ticket on a Greyhound, and I'm going to Baltimore, and then I'll come back and get you. She said, no, you won't. You get around in white girls, I'll never see you again. <laughs> so she packed up too, boy. We bought that two boat Greyhound tickets. I had $12 left. So I said, God, well, at least I'm li- going to be living with my sister. She'll have some food in the house. So we come into Baltimore, jumped on a cab, and he flew us down through the city, scared the living hell out of us. I thought I was going to go to jail just for riding too fast. And uh, showed the guy his address on his uh, Matchbox cover. And I said, do you know where this is? He said, yeah, jump. Yeah, let's go. 
he gets me in front of 27 North Broadway, and all the way there, every house looked identical. I said, how in the hell is he going to find this house, and, all, and everything's identical? There you are right there, buddy. I said, what do you mean? He said, that house right there, that's 27 North Broadway. Uh, look, man, I ain't getting out of this car unless you make sure my sister's living in that house. He said, what floor is she on? I told him, third floor. He goes over there and rings the doorbell. Window opens. Somebody pops their head out, and it was my sister. She had her rollers as big as toilet tissue rings in her head. She looked out there, and she said, can I help you? I said, looked up. I said, oh, my God, that's my sister. That is the most beautiful face I had ever saw in my life. I was scared to death in that big city, boy. She said, uh, he, 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 yeah, he said, yeah, somebody in the car will say that you're, they, they're related to you. I said, don't worry about it. I got it from here, boy. And he threw them suitcases out, and I gave him about 3 or $4 of that, $12. Went up, and Monday morning I had a job. Went to work in Crofton. They had just built, started building Crofton then. I worked there 10 years when we finished up Crofton. I started with a, we started branching out doing subdivisions and one of the builders says, young blood, why don't you start your own business? I said, man, I don't know nothing about no businesses. I ain't got my eighth grade education. He said, I'll help you. I became a contractor, built homes and raised a family, built my own home. I built about 15 homes during that time. And I'm still a contractor at 78 years old, mangling around, but I got a small crew and I love what I'm doing. And America is the place to be. But funny thing, when I went first, first day I went to the job, the guy said, there's another one of them hillbillies from North Carolina. I wonder how does he call me a hillbilly? I ain't, I ain't never seen a hill in my life. All I, <laughs> North Carolina, on them field farms, you could see look like 10 miles and nothing, no hills or anything. So funny thing, I went to Ellicott City to work, and I went home and wrote my mother a letter that night and said, guess what, Mama? We worked in the mountains today, she said. <laughs> I had never seen a mountain in my life. I said, we worked in the mountains. I thought Ellicott City was mountains. <laughs> I'm a hillbilly. I've never seen a hill. <laughs> Thank you. Enjoyed it. So what's wonderful about Carl is that the things that are charming about him as an older man were probably a bit dangerous and dastardly when he was young. Yeah. I love how he talks about how he had to pay off his bootlegging um, <laughs> his bootlegging bill and I was talking with him afterwards about moonshine and running from the revenue agents and all of that so he is a man of a thousand stories <laughs> and um, part of the large population of Lumbee Indians who came to Baltimore in the years after during and after World War II to work in uh, factories here so um, and there's great work being done to really um, share the history of of those folks here in Baltimore. We'll be right back with another story. Support for WYPR's podcasts comes from Catholic Charities. Celebrating its centennial in 2023, Catholic Charities is the largest private provider of social services in Maryland. Learn more about this movement to change lives at cc-md.org. So this second story that we have for you today is shared by Dr. Obed Norman. And he is quite a man, and his story is both personal and also 
uh, political and social. And again, this story was shared at a show that we did in partnership with Baltimore Museum of Art. It was a show about migration stories, and it was in honor of an exhibit featuring new work on uh, the Great Migration. And it runs at Baltimore Museum of Art through January 29th. If you can, check it out. The BMA is free and wonderful, and we were so delighted to partner with them on this. Take a listen. Well, my migration story has two parts. There's a political part, which involves uh, involuntary migration, forced migration. And the second part is more a personal migration, which was unforced and which was very satisfying. But let's start with the political uh, story of migration. It started with my grandmother, Leah, my grandmother, Leah, who was then a very young child who had to flee from our native country, Namibia, and they had to flee to the neighboring country of Botswana. And the reason why they had to flee to the neighboring country of Botswana was because the German government had decreed a genocide against my uh, ethnic group, which is the Ovaherero in Namibia. That was the first genocide of the 20th century. It took place in the years 1904 to 1908. And in that genocide, 85% of my people, the Ovaherero people of Namibia, were murdered by the German forces. And the reason why the German forces did the genocide was because when Germany first came over to Namibia to colonize the country, what happened is that my people, the Ovaherero people, resisted that colonization. The Germans wanted to take over our country, and our people resisted that uh, colonization. And in the early battles of that colonization and, and, and in, in the early battles of the resistance against the Germans, the, the Hereros, the Ovaherero's and the Namas, who were the allies, they soundly beat the Germans. And because of that, the Germans then sent more troops to Namibia, more weapons, and then they put out the genocide, which is to kill every man, woman, and child of those two groups, the Namas and the Hereros. And 85% of our people died. So my grandmother then was in Botswana where she grew up. Now starts the second part of my migration story, which is the personal part. It starts with my grandfather, David, who was then a young man, about 20, uh, 2020, no, no, 1920, was about the year that he migrated from Malawi through Zambia and then went to Botswana, where he met, you guessed it, my grandmother. And the two of them then married, they were two young people, married, and out of that marriage came my mother whose name was Teresa. So I have my own mother, Teresa. (laughs) So uh, my my grandfather then, uh, my my mother was born in 1925, and 20 years later, I was born in 1945. And I grew up in Botswana. I was a child of exile, born in the shadow of this great 
genocide, which we mourn to this day. What happened then is that uh, in my early years, I then went back to my, my country, Na Namibia, where I did my early edu education. And after that, I moved to South Africa, where I got my high school education and my undergraduate degrees. And I worked in South Africa for 20 years as a, as a, STEM, as a STEM teacher. Then came opportunities. I got a... Uh, a, a Fulbright Fellowship from the United States government. So I came to the United States. I got, did my master's degree in, uh, at Penn State, and I then went on to the University of Iowa, where I did my doctorate. And then I spent the next uh, uh, 30 years here in this country uh, being a uh, university professor. Now I'm graduated from uh, Morgan State. And I have... And I have two missions that I continue in my life. And both those two missions are actually informed by my two immigration stories. The first mission that I have, and this came from the political part of the migration story, is that I am very much a part of the struggle for reparations against that genocide that the Germans instituted against my people. The other part of my mission is, is, is a mission of gratitude. Gratitude to the, to the Botswana government, who through their kindness and the generosity uh, gave uh, uh, a place for my uh, grandparents and eventually my parents to have a place in Botswana. In fact, although the, the wars are now over, my people are still living, actually, my, my, my immediate family, many of them are still living in the country of Botswana. So I've, I feel a sense of gratitude uh, about, uh, to that country, and I also feel a sense of gratitude towards the United States, which gave me the opportunity to come here, get my um, education up to the level of a doctorate, and then gave me a work throughout my life to work here, and now I'm retired. And during my, the last years of my uh, uh, work as a researcher, I have developed an intervention through my work, my research work, which is funded by the National Science Foundation. And that work was to find out a way that we can help, especially black students, do better in their STEM, the science studies. And I have developed over 20 years of research, developed this intervention, and I've now started a non-profit, and the purpose of this non-profit is to spread that uh, intervention all over the world. Because using that intervention, I have uh, obtained a great degree of success with my students at the HBCU in the STEM field. So that is the story of my immigration, and uh, thank you very much. I was talking with um, Dr. Norman afterward because I was really struck by that line in his story saying that the German genocide of his ethnic group was the first genocide of the 20th, 20th century. century yeah. And 
you know, it's just that feeling of, wow, I, 85% of his ethnic group was decimated and I, who is a 50-year-old person, have never heard about this. Yeah. And um, feeling both grateful and also really pissed that um, that this history hasn't been part of, you know, anything that anyone ever talked to me about. Um, so it was just a really, it was just a profound experience to listen to his story. And I remember another thing he said, I don't think this was in his story, but that he felt a lot of responsibility as someone who had a chance to come here and get educated to make sure that, you know, he wasn't part of a brain drain, but rather a brain gain and really trying to return um, his learnings and his expertise and talent to Africa, where he's from. Thank you so much for listening to our stories this week, and we look forward to bringing you more soon. We want to thank Maureen Harvey for producing the podcast, and we want to ask you to visit us at stoopstorytelling.com to learn about live events and listen to other episodes. You can find us on social media at Stoop Storytelling. See you soon. Mm-hmm.